Thank you, uh, United Voice. Great to worship with you this morning and great to be here with you. I want to encourage you to turn over to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at several chapters and sections there in just a couple of moments. Last Thursday, I was sitting in my barber's chair, Andy, Andy's Barber Shop, Grand Avenue, Escondido, great barber. I've been doing it for years. And one of the things we always do when I'm getting a haircut is because he knows I'm a minister, he likes to talk about the Bible a little bit. And so he said, what have you been reading lately? What have you been studying? What have you been talking about? And I said, well, you'll find this interesting because I'm getting ready uh, to talk about Absalom. That's, that's just a great story for Barber. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he said, I said, really, Absalom, the guy with the big head of hair? And I said, yeah. He said, the guy, that, the guy whose hair got stuck in a tree and his mule wrap ran out from under him and he died? Killed in that tree. I said, yeah, that absolutely. So his wife, who also works in the shop with him to help run it, said, Well, when you go speak about that, you tell those people that's what happens when you don't get a haircut. <laughs> so, so that is the message to you from Andy's barber shop in Escondido this morning. That's the application, I think, of this particular text. Our story begins with David suffering the fallout of his sin, for which he has been forgiven. But now the harvest of the seeds that have been sown are coming to fruition. The seed sown in his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, they're all hitting hard. And Nathan made a pronouncement in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 10 that begins this way. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight. Before all Israel. This sets up the following tragic chapters which describe the relationship between David and his son Absalom. The tension, the brokenness, the estrangement. And it's not merely the seed sown in his adultery and, and murder, it's the seed sown in a, a life of family dysfunction and fatherly neglect. And disobedience to God and polygamy. David, as we've heard enough through the week, is a mixed bag of good and evil. And so as you move into 2 Samuel chapter 13, you move into six chapters that the writer devotes to this relationship between this father and this son and, and the tension and the brokenness there. And it all begins in chapter 13 with the oldest son, Amnon, who is so filled with lust toward his half-sister Tamar that he does the unthinkable, disregarding her dignity, disregarding her humanity, just disregarding that this is his half-sister. He lays hold of her and rapes her. And then after he rapes her, he's ready to be done with her. He throws her out, tells his servant, get her out of here, bolt the door, don't let her back in. Against all of her pleading that this would be a worse thing to do than the rape itself, to leave her a desolate person. What a disgrace. And so... 
you have this tragic case where he now hates her with a hatred that's greater than the love with which he loved her, if you can ever call it love. And she's off now to live with her brother Absalom. And Absalom is a patient man. He's a plotting man. And he checks all that in his mind and keeps it in his heart and says nothing to his brother and not about it whatsoever, good or evil. And he just waits. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, Absalom's taking care of business. Amnon's invited to a sheep-shearing festival, which is a big event in Israel. He comes, and Absalom gets him drunk. And then Absalom has him killed. He's struck down, and he flees and heads off to Geshur, where he stays with his father-in-law, who's not an Israelite. And he remains there for a period of time. As you move into chapter 14, he makes his way back to Jerusalem in an interesting way. Joab goes to Tekoa, his hometown, and he gets a, a good actress, a woman who can play the part of the mourning mother. And he has her go to David and fulfill this kind of ruse. Hey, listen, uh, I want you to say these things, and I want you to play this part, and my goal is that you persuade David to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. It's not a good thing for the kingdom to have him away. And so she plays the part, she does the work, and ultimately it ends in Absalom making his way back to Jerusalem. But David's very clear. Verse 24 of chapter 14, he says, He must go to his own household, but he cannot see my face. There will not be this fatherly-son relationship. There's brokenness, estrangement. It's kind of a half measure. And then the text goes on to say this about Absalom in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, he is something to look at. He is a, a gorgeous, I don't want that to sound strange coming from me. He is just a handsome devil. And... There's nothing wrong with him, no blemish to be found. goes on to say that he cuts his hair once a year, and at the end of the, the year when the hair is cut, what comes off weighs anywhere from three to five pounds. Then, in chapter 15, after this focus on Absalom's appearance, you start to see Absalom building his brand, building his platform. He's going to take his place in Israel. And so he buys himself a chariot, and he gets a bunch of horses, and he gets a bunch of men to run out ahead of him. He is kingly in appearance. He is charismatic. And what he does is he goes out to the city gate every day, and he waits outside as people are making their way into the city of Jerusalem. And he grabs hold of them before they get in. Many are coming in because they have a court case. They, they have a grievance. They have something that they want the king to settle and so he gets them before they make their way in, and he says, hey, are you an Israelite? Oh, you're an Israelite. Come over. Let's talk. What's your issue? Well, I've got this case against my neighbor or this case against my brother. Oh, <laughs> boy, you've got a legitimate case. That's valid. I hear what you're saying. You know, if only, I mean, just if only you had some representative before the king in Jerusalem. But, you know, King David, he's just not very caring right now, and he's not listening, and not hearing, and every time it was an Israelite, no need to do this with foreigners. Politicians, you know, only need to play to the right crowd. Anytime it was an Israelite, he'd reach out and take their hand, and he'd kiss them, and he'd embrace them. And what the Bible says in this particular chapter is, in verse 6, he stole the hearts of the Israelites. 
And then he sets his fire. He decides that it's time to act. It's time to, to, to establish the insurrection. So with a pretense, he uses his religion. He says to his dad, listen, I, I, I need to go down to Hebron. I made a vow back when I was outside of Jerusalem in exile, so to say, that when I got back to Jerusalem, if you, Lord, brought me back, I'd go to Hebron and I'd worship. And so I want to do that. And so King David's a little bit suspicious, I'm sure, but he gives him his blessing, tells him to go off and worship. So Absalom goes to Hebron, but he's got a plan in place. He's using religion. The kingdom of God is nothing more than a platform right now for Absalom. And while he's there in Hebron, he sets it all up. He tells the people, listen, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, I want it to be announced all over Hebron that Absalom is now king. And so it happens, just as it's recorded. And by the time you get into the end of chapter 15, David hears this at verse 13. It says, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And so David says, come, we must all flee or none of us will escape. So you have this tragic scene of David now, the one who's coming to Jerusalem, dancing and celebrating and bringing the ark of God. Earlier in the book, he is now the one who was standing there at the outskirts. He's got family following. He's making his way across the Kidron Valley, weeping, barefoot, in mourning, fleeing his own son, going up to the Mount of Olives. And he's a kind of Christ figure. We know another one that was betrayed in Jerusalem and made his way across the Kidron Valley and wept there on that mountain. It's a tragic scene. And then in the remainder of the text, it's the story of how Absalom stages the coup, makes his way to Jerusalem, gets bad advice from a former counselor of his father David, sleeps with his concubines up on the very roof, likely in Jerusalem, that David spied Bathsheba from, drives an even greater wedge between him and his father. And then, at the advice of another, a man who has David's interests at heart, a man named Hushai, David has prayed, oh God, please, please, just turn the counsel of Ahithophel, the one that Absalom is trusting in, confound it. He's trusted. He's regarded. Make a way for his counsel to be disregarded. At the advice of Hushai, David is able to draw Absalom into a battle out in the forest of Ephraim. And it's there, as you read in the story, out in the forest of Ephraim, that Absalom loses his life. He's hung in a tree by his head. The mule runs out from under him. Joab, who's been told by David for my sake, Deal gently with my son, goes ahead and does what a general would be and have the propensity to do. Let's, let's get rid of the guy who's the problem. And he ran uh, Absalom through with chaplains and Absalom died. It's a tragic end. And you get to the end of the story and it's David saying, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. There's more to it than that. But what I'd like to do is just take a couple of moments and share what I think are some observations from Absalom's life that will help those of us who are in ministry. And, and here's the primary thing I'd like us to focus on here this morning. It's this. We all need reminders of whose kingdom 
this is. We all need those reminders. Don't you ever read the stories of these kings? And you think to yourself, do any of them realize that this calling is a call not to be a worldly dictator, but to be a shepherd of God's people? To pastor and care for his flock. Here's Absalom. And Absalom is all about Absalom. One of the distinctions that you see between David and his son Absalom is that Absalom... Who starts out, I think, a mixed bag. I think we tend to make Absalom a monster. Just this egotistical, prideful young man. But I, I think at first he's indignant over David's inaction about Tamar. And, and he has some real grievances with his dad. But, but as you move forward into the story, this desire, this desire to upend and kind of usurp David from his throne makes it all about Absalom and his agenda. His efforts from this point forward are totally to upend and usurp God's king and take hold of the kingdom himself. His aim is to gain power. His aim is to get glory and to do it his way. And from the world's standpoint, he had all of the right characteristics that would make this happen. All we're told about Absalom's qualities as a man are his external qualities. He's good looking. He's handsome. He's got a great head of hair. He's a great politician. But when it comes to the Lord, all we're told about Absalom and his worship is that he uses it as a pretense and a platform to get his way and to initiate an insurrection. He uses religion. He uses the kingdom. And he uses people. And he manipulates those people to win them over. And he uses very worldly strategies to fulfill a very Absalom-oriented agenda. So I want to use this story as a precaution to anyone involved in any way in ministry. We have got to keep asking ourselves is this about me, or is this about God? Because it's real easy to use the kingdom of God as a platform to put myself in the limelight and to make it about me and to try to steal the glory from God. And it can happen to any of us. It can happen to a person who's being considered for the eldership in their church. Somebody kind of sides up along uh, the side of them on a given Sunday and they whisper in their ear, you know, we really need somebody like you at the eldership. You know, with your ability, with your success, with your ability to make decisions, we need somebody like you in there to kind of stir things up. And the deal is there might be some legitimacy in that. Just enough truth, but maybe a noble desire is mixed a little bit with an ego that's stirred. And it's not uncommon for somebody to get into that role and then to use it as their own place to exercise authority and power over others instead of an opportunity to shepherd and to care for the people of God. It happens to ministers. 
Throughout my lifetime, I've, I've been preaching for over 30 years now, there's always been a lot of talk about what is good for one's career. Churches are often stepping stones to bigger and better venues. And in discussion, it often becomes about my church. And man, watch out when you start calling it my church. It becomes about my church becoming bigger and my church becoming more cutting edge and, and ministers can live and die according to the attendance report on Monday morning because that's the evidence of their success or their failure. I've heard preachers describe absolutes on their staff who look for every opportunity to undermine their work. Competition among people who are supposed to be serving the kingdom of God. A little conversation here with this group, a little conversation with that, a conversation with that elder and then this one. And there's the spirit that, boy, you know, if I were preaching in this place, it would really take off. But as long as he's in the pulpit, the spirit of Absalom, it breeds competition. Because it's about ego, it's about me, it's not about God, and it's not about his kingdom. And, and some of us in ministry might so hold on to our pulpits in unhealthy ways, refusing to develop others, because we have a fear that somebody might come along and outshine us and replace us. It can cut both ways. And, and don't think it's just elders and ministers. It happens to some of us who lead ministries in our churches. Boy, it's easy for some of us to kind of get an unhealthy ownership and hold on to our ministries and not let others in because we want to control that ministry and leading it has so become a part of our identity in the church that we refuse to let go of our grip on the ministry and pass it on to another even when it's become quite evident that it's outgrown us and our abilities and so we cling to it and lead it into ineffective. Because it's become my personal little kingdom within the kingdom. And then we have the whole issue that we exist today in a celebrity culture. Boy, Absalom wants to make a name for himself. He wants to become known. He wants to be remembered. And the only thing that's keeping him from achieving that agenda, from becoming the great king Absalom, is number one, the will of God. And number two, his father occupies the role that he wants. So, I'm going to say this as a precaution, not at all an accusation. Do not hear it this way, please. I know that only God reads the hearts of us, and it's directed at no one in particular. I assure you it's bred out of observation. At some point in your service to the kingdom of God, you must realize, that God chooses at times to elevate some to higher profile use of the kingdom. And he keeps some faithfully laboring away in some small rural church where that person faithfully teaches and cares for a flock of God's people. Where their work is sometimes appreciated and sometimes not. God sometimes chooses to thrust five talents into the lap of one three talents into the lap of another, and he places one talent in another person's lap. And the thing that we need to understand is this, that our success in the eyes of God 
has nothing to do with the number of talents God places in our lap, but how we faithfully use those talents to serve the purposes of God. And our success or failure has nothing to do with the congregation's size or location, but how we faithfully serve the purposes of God where God has put us. It is a question of who we serve. Will it be God or will it be us? I know that there are a lot of people who need to hear this in ministry today. Because of our celebrity culture, there are a lot of faithful servants laboring in places and they feel like they don't measure up because they've never made it to this particular place of status. And folks, it's not about that. And then I want to say this. Because our church culture exists in the American culture, the American celebrity culture that is often all about Absalom, it is easy for us to yield to the spirit of Absalom. Here's what Absalom did. Chapter 18, verse 18, it says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself. And it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. So again, let me say this to those of us in ministry. Be very careful about making monuments to yourself. If you're a young person in ministry, be very careful about yearning to make a name for yourself and having a higher profile. Just be faithful. We have witnessed in churches today the rise and fall of high-profile ministers who have a great impact when they're ascending, and then they leave a lot of damage in their wake when they stumble and fall. And, and maybe that happens in part, not just because of their missteps, but because we're all too quick as believers to take our eyes off of Jesus and to become enamored with people. And to become enamored with the high-profile person in ministry. Our job is not to build a pillar with our name on it. Absalom took down 20,000 Israelites in that battle in the forest of Ephraim at the end of his life. So if you're one whom God seems to be raising the profile of to bless the kingdom, then keep nurturing your inner person. Have people around you who can speak into your life and hold you to account, who will pray for you, who will speak truth to you. And let's pray for those that are the five-talent people and the one-talent people and the people in between. And let's just seek to be faithful servants of God. Chris Pratt was on the Stephen Colbert show. Colbert was asking him about some things spiritually. He'd been on the Daniel diet plan. And so he was asking him about that. And then Colbert turned the subject to a little bit more of a serious conversation. And he said, listen, as somebody in the public spotlight who has faith, do you ever feel like Daniel who survived the lion's den? Pratt responded with this. He said, there is this great quote that I actually heard in church. And I think you heard it from Christine Kane. If the spotlight that is shining on you is brighter than the light that comes from within you, it will kill you. So no competition. Let's pray for one another.
God will be glorified in everything that we do. Listen, as a minister, I said I've been at this a long time, and I'm a little bit like the farmer's agent. I've seen a lot, so I've learned a lot. <laughs> there, there is a lot of insecurity in people in ministry. And there are some things your minister will never tell you. Your minister might suffer from the insecurity of comparison. People walk out the door and, you know, his sermons, they just don't feed me. I mean, you know, after all, on Monday, I listened to Andy Stanley's podcast, and then on Tuesday, Tim Keller, and I just got access, you know, to all these, these great sermons. So, you know, I kind of come in and sit down and open up my phone and look at Facebook while he's preaching. There are a lot of people in ministry today themselves in the study and preparation and they're out nights of the week meeting with people to counsel and share the faith and to organize ministries and then on Sunday they're scrambling up there to preach and then on Sunday at noon they're driving home and they're wondering if they measure up and there are a lot of people in ministry that deal with the insecurity of longevity longevity is a good thing all studies seem to suggest that your minister does better in your church if you hold on to him for a long time. And that doesn't always fit the absolute culture. David is suffering a little bit from the comparison, right? Absalom's the new deal. He's the old deal. And while familiarity might not always breed contempt, it does breed over-familiarity, and the novelty wears off. That's why we talk about honeymoon phases in ministry. Your minister is dealing with some insecurities, and some of that is on him or her. Because our pride can be a problem. But some of that is on us as a body of believers. And so my caution is this. Let's love one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's seek to glorify God above all else. Well, I hope that's been a good caution. Let's turn for just a minute to this tragic figure of David, just for this quick close. Psalm 3. David, he wins in the end. God wins. Unlike Absalom, he's humbled. He's broken. As people are fleeing Jerusalem, he's so kind and gracious to everybody, foreigner and Israelite alike. Even Shemai, Shimei, who comes out throwing rocks and dirt clods and, and is yelling at David, you are an awful man. You're only getting what you deserve. Your son Absalom has come up because God's finished with you. You're a bloodthirsty man, and this is vengeance from the Lord. Throwing rocks, throwing dirt clods. David just says, maybe this is from God. Maybe God told him to do it. And, and you know, maybe God will look down on me, and maybe he'll be pleased, and maybe he'll renew his covenant with I'm just, going to, I'm just going to be gracious. And one of the great psalms that we read early in the Psalter, Psalm 3, is a psalm written by David that says something about his heart as he's fleeing his son Absalom and fleeing Jerusalem. Here's how the psalm goes. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Men are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, a shield around me. My glory. 
The one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. David's heart is back with God. He's walking up that mountain so downcast, so discouraged, so despondent, and yet he remembers it's, it's God who's my protection. I can go to sleep and wake up. He's the one who lifts my head so that I can hold my chin up because he's my glory. And it's all coming back. He doesn't blame others. He doesn't bargain with God. He doesn't believe in himself and his own resourcefulness. It's God again with David. And ultimately, this isn't a story about Absalom or David, but God and a promise that God made back in chapter 7 that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And we can worship this morning because of this. If we're faithful, God remains faithful. So let's praise Him.